Welcome to Circular Firing Squad. I'm Marty Gensius, a counseling faculty at Kent State University and host for Circular Firing Squad. We've got six members, six questions, and six answers for each question. Questions are generated by each squad member and run from the silly to the serious. So let's find out who's in the squad tonight. Hi, Eric Perry. I'm a clinical faculty member at Southern New Hampshire University and co-host of the Tech Savvy Professor. Hi, I'm Steph Martyr. I am a doctoral candidate at Kent State University, a practicing clinical counselor and co-host of Grad School Deconstructed. Gina Martin. I'm a doctoral candidate at the University of Iowa and affiliate faculty at Northwestern University. Hi, everybody. I'm Elliot Ingersoll, a professor of counseling at Cleveland State University and co-host of Apply Topically. Hey, everyone. Jen Cook, assistant professor, Marquette University Counselor Education and Counseling Psychology. Eric, you've got the first question for tonight. All right. Uh, So I'd like to ask, how do you refocus when distracted by something in the classroom or counseling session? Huh? What? Sorry, I was distracted. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, let's see. I tend to try to refocus by thinking back to the last thing that was said um, and trying to repeat that and then kind of getting back into line. It's not a very complex practice, but it can be difficult to do. But generally, it's kind of like retracing your footsteps. And I and I. kind of deconstructor wherever, wherever we're at. And wait a second, what happened right before that, right before that. And then, okay, that was the last useful thing we were talking about that was on track. Let's pick it up from there. Gina. Yeah. So for me, I think that when it comes to teaching and getting distracted in teaching, I find that it's usually because I've gone down a rabbit hole or a tangent or something completely unrelated and something that helps me refocus when I find that I'm rambling about a specific topic that was not included in that day's lesson plan or whatever, I find that uh, looking at my PowerPoints, looking at the content for that day is a great way to kind of pull me back to focus. Um, If the students become unfocused, I think also redirecting their attention towards something within the content is helpful. Uh, In the counseling session, I feel like it's a little bit different. Uh, I find that like doing mindfulness stuff, breathing, breath work, that kind of thing tends to help a little bit. Elliot? Well, for about a year, I think it was starting in 2016, I got curious about these condensed oxygen tanks. I got a, the the listeners can't see it, but it's a 95% uh, pure boost oxygen. And so I used it kind of as a prop, but also as an experiment. And I would kind of take a big breath. And then see if my brain cleared. But then I did research on these and it was like, well, millions of years of evolution and gas exchange in your lungs is not going to be affected by a canister of oxygen. I got to say that the students thought it was kind of entertaining. But then I realized, well, I'm probably modeling, you know, buying into weird kinds of things. So then I I went back to my standby, which is almost always uh, humor or some sort of kind of a self-reflection on how did I get here? And usually someone in the class will say, uh, well, here's how you got there. And uh, now I go back with that. So not so much into the oxygen anymore, but it was a fun phase. Marty. 
you know, when there was a time in the classroom where we had actual bulletin bulletin boards, I would, um, you know, write a few notes on the bulletin board to let me know where I was going next. Steph remembers these kinds of things when we taught together or little notes to kind of remind me if I got off track, what we had to get done for the evening. It also was up there for students to see what we had to get done for the evening. So it kind of helped with that. But when I thought about this question, I thought this is when someone's doing something in the classroom or something happens in the classroom and, and I'm distracted. And typically, uh, sometimes I will speak up and say, hey, that's distracting me or, hey, I got distracted by that. Um, if it's two students that like to talk a lot uh, and I can move around the classroom, I'll move around the classroom next to them so they talk less. And then if I'm really thrown off, if something heavy happens or something crazy happens, then it's time for a break. That's what I do. Jen? It's funny you mentioned walking up to people, Marty, because I am a big walker upper on students. Um, and I think that makes them very uncomfortable at times, especially in the beginning when they're not used to it. But I was just thinking about how it's been a year, literally, since I have been able to use that technique, which I find to be very effective in getting the side chatters to knock it off. Um, if they don't knock it off. I, I have gone so far as to say, Hey, what's going on over there? Y'all like, what's so funny? You know, I mean, I have no problem calling that out and trying to figure out what's happening. But when I get off with, you know, it's usually the rabbit hole, the random topic that, you know, somebody asks a question, it's a great question. And then I got to tell them 12 stories because I can't stop myself. And I have always brought an agenda um, of notes and it's not word for word, but it'll, it covers every single bullet for that class period. And of course, you know, I've taught these classes so many times at this point, I know what's on the agenda and I've reviewed it before I go, but I hold that in my hand as if it is, you know, I don't know, some kind of sacred text that in the event that I have gone off, which I have, and I will every single class period. I come back to it, or if I lose my train of thought, happens all the time, um, I come back to it. And sometimes I'll say, if I look at the clock and we're actually doing well on time, I'll say, uh-oh, y'all, I need to take a look at my notes because my guess is I missed something here. And usually they start laughing because they know me to go back and say, oops, I, I missed a couple of things. I want to make sure that you know these are really important. But that handheld agenda, that that's my lifeline um, for the easily distracted. Eric? Yeah, I, I think for me, and it kind of goes along with some of what Marty said, I go with brutal honesty most of the time. And I've noticed this both in session and in teaching that if if I'm distracted or, or something distracts me, I, I tend to call it out. Um, and honestly, you know, 99 times out of 100, it's probably me, right? It's It's the rabbit hole. It's the you know, just moving in a different direction or, you know, shiny things, whatever, it doesn't really matter. Um, but just calling, calling that out and kind of being uh, upfront about it and, and genuine in the moment, I think really helps to connect people. And, and it came out of a conversation uh, in a techniques course with some students who said, you know, what do I do when I space or I you know, lose track of the story or just, you know, get distracted by some element of the story that's maybe not focused on that, that, you know, presenting problem or what we're working on at the time. And, you know, I, a lot of the time, I think genuineness is the way to go just to have that conversation. 
anyway, I, I thought it was an interesting topic just because it came up kind of organically in class. Uh, I think Stephanie has our next question. So what's the most egregious thing a student has done in class? Gina. I think this is a great question. And for me, I don't know if egregious is the right word. I've had a lot of inappropriate things happen in class. And as I was thinking through what I'm going to say for this, so many like inappropriate or just kind of off moments come to mind. And so I don't know if any of these really fit egregious, but uh, I'm going to go with them anyway. So I've had students, and I think the one that gets me most worked up or irritated is when they call out specific grading things from a specific assignment in front of the whole class. Like, because I wrote this on my paper and you took off two points, can you tell me what the rationale was for that? And I'm like, oh, you know, this is more of a private conversation. This is something we need to handle individually. So now, um, I always preface all of my assignments and anytime I'm giving feedback with, if there's something personal, we'll meet outside of class. This is something that happens individually and that kind of thing. Um, But that's happened a lot. Students falling asleep in class and I mainly teach uh, on Zoom. So you're just looking at everybody's face all the time throughout the entire class. And so when a student is like blatantly sleeping and like snoring on camera, on mute, you can tell and that's a little egregious. Um, so I think those those two would be my my most egregious or. How about you, Elliot? You know, I, I really had to think about this one because I have had I've kind of had students go off on me. Uh, but in a way that I was kind of like, OK, well, let's let's hear yourself. Let's hear you out. And uh, and many times they had really good points. and. I really like that about our students. So that never struck me as egregious. Although I know when I was a junior faculty and senior faculty heard about what was going on in my class, they were like, oh, no, you should set boundaries. I was like, well, I think it's okay. You know, but I think that there were three things that came to mind. One was a person who was vaping in the back of the room and we didn't have a policy on it. But I also knew the person was in recovery from heroin dependence. So I was kind of like, ah, I don't know. So I, I talked to the person after class, but I was like, I had mixed feelings. And then there was a person who we have a we have an attendance policy, which I am not quite frankly a fan of, but you know, it was a majority vote. And I was like, the junior faculty really wanted it. And I felt like, okay, they're the ones who have to move this program forward. So I'll go with it. And this person had missed two classes and then told me they wanted to miss a class because it was their birthday. And I said, well, I'll make the class as celebratory as I can for you. But, you know, it's going to ding you. And the person came to class intoxicated and you, you could smell the whiskey and it was like whiskey. I'm like, and, and I, I kind of pulled them aside after class and I said, you know, Sounds like you've had a big day and you and I need to talk. Not now, but uh, we're, we're going to have to talk. That, that, was, that, was, that was hard. But I think there were only three times I actually caught people cheating on an exam and they weren't even really trying to hide it. They had a little crib sheet, you know, and they had it under the test. And I walk around and I do go close book, close note tests. And I remember this one person, I said, well... 
you're not allowed to have any notes for this. So that's cheating. So, you know, you're cheating the exam. And the person looked up at me and said, I am. I mean, it was like, and I was like, yeah, yeah, let's go out in the hall and we'll, we'll talk about what these boundaries are. And when I said no, no books, no notes, that includes crib sheets under your test. So anyway, Marty. Uh, you know, I uh, thought of this question and you, you all obviously pay much more attention to your class than I do. I'm kind of in my own place. So, you know, they could be uh, doing somersaults and I, I'm not aware of it even more so with, uh, with teaching on Zoom. Early in my career at Kent, I realized that a lot of people were getting cell phones and a lot of people were connected to their home and also connected to their work. And they were worried about their kids who were being, you know, had, had sitters at home and things like that. So I just said for a cell phone policy, Hey, be respectful, put it on vibrate. If you need to take a call, just get up and go to a safe place and take the call. So that worked fairly well. I was up teaching one night and a student's phone started vibrating and she got up and walked to the front corner of the room like she was being punished and faced herself into the corner and took the phone call during class. I think she maybe took my, uh, I should have been more direct and said, yeah, you can actually leave the room and take the phone call. But she decided instead to kind of talk through this two minute phone call. I just stopped teaching uh, and, you know, I was far enough away from her. I just stopped teaching and looked over and the rest of the class looked over and didn't know how to deal with it. More recently, Zoom, uh, one time I felt like I was a pan on a stove because a student decided it was time for dinner and she was going to cook dinner for her family who was walking around, you know, and things have been tough during COVID and I'm sure roles have changed and employment's changed and expectations have changed in the household. But I literally had the point of view of being on someone's stove while they were preparing dinner and I was trying to teach the rest of the class. So that's, uh, that's the two that come to mind. One, a long story, a long time ago, and one that's a little bit more recent, Jen. Wow, cooking dinner. Well, I told you all last week I caught a student swigging beer during Zoom. So, you know, that was recent. I don't think that's egregious. That's just a poor choice. I, I struggled with this one because, you know, students have done some really irritating things, to, in my opinion. They've been disrespectful. You know, there was, I had this crabby cohort one time that, that was a long two years, um, but they would, they had like a group chat on Messenger or something and they, all, you know, bring their laptops to class. And it's not just enough that they would send a message to someone on the chat. They would have to make eye contact with the person as soon as they click send. And so I would see, speaking of distracting, I would see the eyes go across the room. And I wanted to say, oh, did, so-and-so, did you just send a message to so-and-so via your computer when you're supposed to be paying attention? You know, I mean, this is the kind of stuff. I had a student last semester, but back in like October, all of a sudden, I mean, and we're like maybe eh, within 10 minutes of taking a break. And all of a sudden he just pops up and like shoots out of the room. And I thought, oh my goodness, I hope the student isn't sick. 
on, we take a break and I see him out and I said, is everything okay? He said, I got an alert on my phone. It started snowing and I've never seen snow before. And I looked at this child and I said, you're going to get plenty of opportunities. This is Milwaukee. <laughs> I wanted to say, put your ass back in the chair while I'm still lecturing. You know, so, I mean, that's most of the stuff I get is just this kind of piddly, disrespectful kind of stuff. Now, of course, I think I've shared with all of you at some point that last spring during our capstone for our first year students, we were Zoom bombed by child pornography. And of course, I don't believe that my students had anything to do with that. But I think that's that fits the category of egregious as far as I'm concerned. And when you're in charge of the learning environment and something happens like that, it's it's pretty difficult to to roll through and to kind of move through. But the rest of this stuff, eh, I can remediate it, usually with a little humor. And if it doesn't work with a little humor, then, well, we get to go up to the next level. Yeah, I mean, that's a big one. I mean, oh, I... So I, I I had to think on this one quite a bit. I, I don't, we've had some issues. I've taught online for a while. So there's some pretty common things that we'll run into, you know, mostly having to do with where the camera is and who's in it and what's behind it and those types of things. But I, I, I think back to the, the, one of the times I was serving as an adjunct was I think my second course I ever taught and, you know, you want to do a good job as an adjunct. You want a job somewhere. Uh, but I, I'm a pretty stickler for the rules, especially when it's respecting one another. And I was teaching a techniques course. It was kind of a blended techniques and ethics course. And one of the students said something really offensive in, in the part as client. And trying to goat the other student into messing up their role play. And, you know, it was clear that it was disrespectful and intentional. And, and I removed the student from the class uh, and said, you know, this is, we're going to have to talk about it and have a conversation, you know, but that kind of like just kind of intentionally hurtful comments and disrespect is, is something that I just, I can't handle, particularly in an atmosphere where we're training to help others. So it was something that really sticks out in my mind and where I think I really found my voice that day. So it's something that, like I said, just sticks out to me. Steph? Well, when I was thinking about this question, I mean, I guess put out a big word, see what kind of responses you get. And then, you know, um, It's kind of it's kind of tough. It just, you know, anything seems so minimal now after hearing Jen's response. But, you know, just in general, but at the same time. See, now I'm doing my distracted thing, going back, <laughs> walking it back. So it also told me thinking about this question, how much stuff has become normalized that we experience in the classroom? Because things about 10 years ago, I would have been like, What? students did what they they did what during class they said what to a professor would have caught me so off guard so I think now the fact that very few things you know reach that egregious level but I mean you know I've seen stuff more as a student from other students rather than from a teacher to other students and for that reason I'm not going to really share 
perhaps some of the things that I've uh, seen, but, you know, just kind of really going against some ethical norms, some things that are questionable, beyond questionable. I mean, it's blatant. But also as far as students, a lot of uh, going beyond like those little disrespectful stories you were talking about and more about being verbal on a uh, on Blackboard or something and, and kind of really questioning an instructor or professor and saying like, how could you even make an exam like this? This is ridiculous to expect us to be able to do all of this. And it's like, even as a student years ago, I'm like, shut up, you're in grad school. You, you got to do it. I, I don't know. Anyway, Gina, what's the next question? I, I love that. I think that's a great point, though, Steph. I, too, have been shocked and horrified at the trajectory of how things have shifted over the past even five years since I've entered the field. Well, we're going to switch gears a little bit here, and we're going to talk about our favorite or ideal pets. And I want you all to describe them if you don't have them. So we'll start with Elliot. And I just have to say, as you were introducing the topic of ideal pets, uh, Steph's cat did this beautiful, perfect shadowy silhouette on the back of the couch there. And I was just like, that is one choreographed cat. I I am looking. <laughs> yeah, we're going to uh, adopt a dog in May because I'm not teaching summer. So I'll have some time to, you know. Uh, I'm I'm hoping to get a golden shepherd mix, but I'm open. But my really own ideal thing is uh, in my five to seven year plan. I want that dog to be really cool when we cross the border to Canada, which is where we're going to end up because I am not staying in this country any longer than I absolutely have to. Marty. Kimbo. Um, I've had three dogs in my life all occurring in the last 20 years. Well, 23 years. Cola, who was a runner, and after a couple of years ran out into traffic, and that was it for Cola. Kimbo, who we've had for, we had for 15 years. She was quiet. She was easygoing. Um, just the right dog for our personality. Just a amazing rescue that we got. And the weird thing was, now we have a new dog, uh, Kona. All our dog names are K. And Kona is being trained and is getting better. It's a two-year-old German Shepherd. But Kimbo, I'll tell you, um, I was preparing and am preparing for a presentation and looking at some video of me doing some technology work and found some video of about two years ago. And you can see Kimbo at 15 years kind of lapsy walking really slow around the background and then turning around and coming back. And that was, that was, uh, that was just the best dog in the world for us. Jen. When I was growing up, we mostly had dogs, um, although I did have a mini lop rabbit named Punky, um, who used to scratch the crap out of me, but I absolutely love that rabbit. Um, of course, it was an Easter present at some point. Um, and we had a guinea pig named aptly Piggy. We were very creative. 
And I, I have to tell a little story about Piggy because this guinea pig lived for like 10 years or something. I mean, this had to have been like the oldest living guinea pig on the planet or something. But it, we had it in, a, in an open top cage. Um, and so, you know, when, when it would want a little treat, it would come up to the, to the top and do this little me, 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 you know, and they're adorable, right? So it started to find out that it would get a treat every time it heard the refrigerator door open because that's where the carrots were because we'd give it carrots. So one day Piggy got really excited and crawled up on the side of the cage and like flipped out of the cage onto the floor. And it was a good, I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh, but it was a good like four or five feet to the ground. And, you know, she, I, it, they did okay. Um, but um, her little tooth came loose in the front. And so for about six months or whatever it was, we had to shave the carrots, you know? We, so every time, you know, Piggy, Piggy heard the door to the refrigerator open, you know, we had to take the carrots out and shave them up. You know, it wasn't just this instantaneous, you know, think Pavlov, you know, where we would grab the carrot and take it out there. So poor little Piggy stopped doing her little me, 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 because she didn't get the instantaneous treat of the carrot. Um, we also had a, a cockatiel named Buddy who liked to drink wine and had um, a shoe fetish um, and would really um, have very interesting times with anyone's shoes, usually when they were empty, not when people were wearing them, but occasionally when people were wearing them. Um, but as an adult, I've had cats. Um, and I know I'm telling like 20 animal stories cause I'm a huge animal lover. Um, but my first cat as an adult, when I was in seminary was named Chuck. Um, he was polydactyl. He, so he had the extra, the Hemingway cat and he was beautiful and lived all over the country with me. He lived until he was 13. He passed away right after we moved to Milwaukee, but he was the coolest dude on the planet. And I have two other cats now, Chuck and, or excuse me, Xander and Tasha, um, both of whom we believe to be of a Russian blue background because that's what they look like. So of course I gave them Russian names. Yeah, I give people names for animals, obviously. Eric. So sorry to interrupt, but Jen, so Piggy in motorcycle culture, we would say Piggy went over the high bar. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'll tell, I'll tell you all the story someday of how um, Buddy met his fate, uh, which is a very sad story. So we won't bring it down because thinking of Piggy makes me very happy. Well, I, I'm a huge animal person too. And I, I think we have a, a Russian blue actually, Jen, named Oliver. Um, who's just the coolest cat ever. And I, I never thought I would like cats until we got Ollie. Um, but Zoe was by far my favorite pet. Um, my wife and I adopted her. She was a rescue. She was a pit lab mix, black lab mix. Huge baby, right? And, you know, it, it, at the time my wife and I were living together, all of our furniture was uh, Goodwill stock right? Like milk crate chairs for company, that kind of thing. And we brought her home and she tore through everything we had. And we called the, the, the agency back angels for animals. And we said, look, we don't know how to train a dog. We, we probably jumped into this too quickly. Uh, and they're like, that's okay. We'll send her to be trained. So they sent her to the supermax prison here in Ohio and had the inmates train her. And they sent her back with a letter um, three weeks later. And she was phenomenal. I mean, she was always sweet and, and kind and gentle. 
um, scary looking, but just just the kindest and sweetest dog. Um, so she used to do this trick where you tap on the wall and go shake down and she'd put her paws up on it like you were going to pat her down like in the prison. And the letter that we got from the inmates was just fabulous. It was their favorite thing to do and to train these dogs to, to do the shakedown. Um, and we cracked up about it. She, she lived almost 14 years um, and, you know, used to lay under my daughter's crib and, and everything else. And, and you couldn't even play fight around her. She would put her mouth over your arm or whatever to get you to stop because she didn't like any kind of play fighting or wrestling or whatever. She would never bite, never seen her bite down on anything. Uh, not even a toy. She would just carry them in her mouth and waltz around the house. Um, so still miss her, still my ideal pet. Steph? And she used to uh, know how to make liquor in the toilet too, right? I, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. It wasn't on the list, but she could probably do it. Shoebox microwave. So I was never a dog person growing up, but I'm going to get to that in a minute. Always love cats. Jen, some of your stories reminded me though of a great pet I had once. Okay. This is a bit of a story. So it was senior prank day. So like senior year of high school near like the last, right before everyone goes on uh, to do their senior project or whatever, senior prank day. I don't know. We're all sitting in English class. I'm sitting on the desk just because we're all chatting and whatever and having our food. No big deal. The door to the English room was open. And someone just ran by really quickly and threw this box into the room and something was in my hair. And um, I thought it was like a plastic dinosaur, just some weird action figure or something. And I pull it out and it looks kind of like a mouse. And, I mean, and it's like a living thing, like a mouse. So I, I don't think I gave anyone the reaction they wanted. I was just kind of I think I was a little bit more shocked and stunned and like what? just happened. But then I'm like, Oh, luckily I had a free period. The next period I go drive over. Luckily, cause it's, I'm a senior. I just, I can leave campus. I drive to the pet store. I buy a cage and everything. And when I'm at the pet store, I'm like, Oh, this, I got this mouse. They're like, that's not a mouse. That's a rat. And I'm like, Oh, cool. It was a baby rat. <laughs> so I took it home and, and, um, that was a really awesome pet. I had like little yogurt treats for it and I would hold it on my shoulder and the rat would run up and it would just like chill on my shoulder and eat its yogurt treats. And uh, that was a good rat. Um, but now, um, well, later on, favorite cat was Major Tom. Well, before the two cats I have now, but had him for 20 years. My parents kind of kept him when I was in college um, and doing other things. But he he was just he was a joy. It turned out we rescued him, but he was from, um, he was a Maine Coon. So I guess he was just, you know, goofy. He was just silly. Um, now when I met my husband at the time, when we started dating, he had this dog Wilson for about two months. If I wanted to keep dating this person, he came with the dog, but it turns out Wilson is just the most fabulous dog ever. Uh, it turns out Mike had taken some training courses and knew what he was doing and helped me learn how to train the dog. And, and we go running together. And then you saw gremlin Elliot at the beginning of the segment, jump up behind me and her sister is gizmo and they sleep and they, they just do everything with us. They're very social and they get along with Wilson and it's just one big happy family. Gina. <laughs> These are great. Um, so I'm also an animal lover. Uh, I grew up with dogs, so I've had a lot of really good dogs, but 
I have one dog currently. He's right here. This is my Oliver, Eric. It's same name. Um, and Oliver is my buddy. He is, they, they say that you have like one dog in your lifetime. That is like your soulmate, your soul dog, whatever. And this is mine. So we got him a few years ago. His birthday is actually this week. Uh, he'll be, I think, six now. Um, and right, so we got him when he was a really little puppy. We got him from a rescue and he was actually born at the rescue. And we just fell in love with him right away. We actually have another dog upstairs too. His name is McDuff and uh, McDuff's much older. So McDuff's about like 10, nine or 10 now. And when we brought Oliver home, we hated Oliver. Oliver was also not trained, similar to Eric's story, but Oliver actually ate walls instead of furniture. And we thought it was his claws at first uh, until one day I was sitting with him, much like he is now. He sits next to me all the time. And he just walked up to the wall and took a bite out of the wall. I have never known an animal to do that. Um, so he, he did that. He destroyed our, our apartment. And then he also destroyed all of our bedding. He ate through every linen, like cottony material that he could. And so after about like three or four months, we were like, this dog is a nightmare. I don't know what we're going to do with him. <laughs> we have to figure something out. And he just wormed his way into our hearts. He is now like the nicest, least destructive dog, um, just a lover through and through. So that's my buddy. And that's where this, this question was born out of. So Gina, is he your dissertation buddy? Like, is he helping you write? Because Chuck was my dissertation buddy. I had Xander then at the time too, but like Chuck would come and sit up with me and like get up on my keyboard while I was, while I was typing, like it was like he needed to participate. So I don't know if Oliver's your dissertation buddy. He is actually, yes. He doesn't sit on the keyboard. Thankfully I'm, he might break the computer and then I would be very sad. Uh, especially if he ate the computer, then I'd really, he'd be demoted <laughs> in my world. Um, but he, he sits by me every time and he curls up just like he is tonight. just curled up right next to me. Anytime I write that dissertation. Um, also when I was pregnant, he would curl up with me when I went into labor, he got right on my eye level, looked deep into my eyes and like waited and was just so on edge. So this dog, he gets me. So Elliot, I think you have the next question. I just have to say, I'm very heartened by all the pet stories. My partner and I are kind of intense. And it was just like when we had two kids, it was like, oh, my gosh, another living thing in this house. Can we do it? You know, and, you know, my son's 18 now. He's, he's his own person. My daughter's almost 16. And, you know, as they as they differentiate developmentally appropriate, you know, it's just like we're like, yeah, you know, yeah, dog would be great. You know, so it's like, <laughs> yeah, we got to get there in our own way. But I love I just love hearing these stories. It's so fun. Although I never had a dog that ate walls, but, you know. It's always a first, right? Here's my question. Uh, what are your thoughts on compressed summer semesters at university? Are they for the faculty or are they for the students or whatever you want to say, Marty? I think they're for the university. I mean, they, they, we've got that chunk of time in the center. You got a bunch of empty rooms. But frankly, I, I don't think too differently about summer sessions. Maybe it's because I teach different courses in the summer, so I don't 
compare my summer courses to my fall or spring courses. And because of that, I don't notice a change in the process. I've always been teaching them that way. I think the problem that I really have is when students decide, oh, I think I'll sign up for three eight-week courses, which would be the equivalent of taking six courses for eight weeks because everything's doubled and they go crazy trying to do that. We don't encourage that. And I'm not sure if people have attempted to do that. Even two courses keeps them pretty busy during the summer. But, you know, everybody wants to get through everything quickly. So that's the thing that I struggle with, with uh, compressed summer courses. Jen? Our summer courses are six weeks and it's doable. I think it is more for the university. I mean, they get some good cash during that time. Let's not lie. I mean, I don't know what y'all summer pay is, but mine is that I practically pay them to teach the class. You know, when I was in my master's program, our summer term classes were four weeks and we would go twice a week for six hours each time. And that wasn't for nobody. That was not for the students. It was not for the faculty. I took foundations that way or theories, what we would call theories at my university. I took theories that way. Doing theories in four weeks, like that entire textbook, that was intense. I mean, the professor just snapped right through it. I mean, I learned, but I mean, that's all I did during that time. And, you know, our students do four courses in summer. They do usually two in summer one and two in summer two, unless they do internship. And that runs, you know, the whole summer. They're exhausted. And that week in between summer and fall is not nearly enough. So when we had two weeks because they kind of messed around with it a couple of years ago, that was amazing. But then this year we had like two days or something because they opened early because of COVID because they wanted to get everybody out early. I mean, I don't mind teaching summer, but I would like to be more appropriately compensated for summer courses because they kick your rear end from here to next week, as far as I'm concerned. Eric? Now I teach in a 12-month program. So it's 10-week courses, week break in between. You know, we get a little bit of distance and during December holidays and then an extra break of a week in the summer. So our program is 10-week courses that just continuously go. I think back when I was teaching in a more brick and mortar program and summer courses were really difficult. I taught theories in the summer and thinking back on it, I'm grateful that I didn't take it that way because I mean, it's really, really difficult. And we did kind of the same thing. It was, it was two weeks. You're there six hours a day. It's a pretty brutal kind of schedule. And then actually one of the universities that I taught at had a second term in the summer that was only a week that was for a three credit hour course. And you were teaching pretty much eight hours a day. It's brutal. It's all tests. There's no way you can do any kind of reflection or paper writing or anything like that. I do think it's for the university's benefit for the most part. I think it's a grueling experience for the students. It helps them progress further. I'm almost a bigger fan of the 10 weeks and just kind of keeping it moving model. Things feel steadier. It feels like expectations are set. You don't get that summer break in the same way, but things are just kind of this rolling thing. And I feel like those big breaks, sometimes you have to like rein yourself back in and there's kind of this in and out flow. Or maybe that's just how I convince myself I'm good with teaching 12 months out of the year. Either way, that's where I am now. I've only really experienced them as a student. I can't imagine having to do all the grading for all of that compressed material 
because it can be dense. Depending on the class, there are some classes where it's kind of feels like, oh, it's nice. We have a summer vibe going. It keeps things casual. It keeps you connected, though. This is especially pre-COVID. You know, it gave you a reason to go to campus and it was kind of nice three days a week. For my schedule, it worked out and it was kind of nice because I also didn't overload my summer. I knew better. I just wasn't going to do that. I wasn't going to be one of those students who doesn't take a break and takes those three summer classes. I think it it just depends on on your situation where it's best. But yeah, university comes out on top. I can agree with that. How do you think, Gina? So as a student, I loved compressed summer classes. And the reason is But Eric, you mentioned making progress faster. (laughs) That was always a thing for me and something that I always valued. So that was an undergrad though. In my master's program, I went to Northwestern and it was also that 10 week schedule. And I loved that. I thought it was great to have the short, but intense ish quarter. And then when I got into the PhD program, it switched to semesters and we don't take anything over the summer. So I just teach over the summer. And so I think as a student, love them. As a professor, would hate that. I think it would be a whole lot more work on on the professor end to have to teach for six hours. That sounds particularly rigorous and grueling. So I would definitely say if the if the tables were turned again and if I were going back, I would do it, but not as an instructor. Back to you, Elliot. Well, that's insightful, you know, Gina, because I got to admit, as a student, Yeah, I took as many courses as I could. I soaked them up, bang, bang, bang. But even as a student, even as a person with ADHD, I was like, I ain't quite getting my money's worth here. But the university is, and I appreciate Marty's point that, yeah, there there is a profit thing. I think my second term as chair, I had an epiphany, which would have had me probably being chased with banjos and pitchforks. I would just put everyone on a 12-month contract three 15-week semesters, and you still teach a 3-3 or a 3-2, but you decide where you want those classes. You choose, that's fine. I taught psychopharmacology in a six-week summer semester, and it a nightmare. I was jabbering like a triathlete on Adderall by the end of it, and the students, they were like, oh my gosh, what is going It was not functional. And I think part of it is just my life. I, I've never had a life where you had regular summer vacations. But when I talk to people who are like, well, you know, we have a a week we go away. So if I can do one six-week semester and then take the second one off, I can go on on holiday. And I get that. I do get that. But I, I do struggle with it because I feel like pedagogically, I am not at the top of my game when I have to condense something from 16 weeks down to six. And then, of course, Americans and their air conditioning. Oh my God. It's teaching in a meat locker. I'm like, I'm sorry. Do you think we're all going through male or female menopause and weigh 18 stone? What in the world are you freezing us out for? I've had students bring winter coats into these classes. So it's like as if the six weeks weren't hard enough, then you're going to torture us with freezing cold. So lots of thoughts on that one, but I appreciate your input and Marty, I believe you have the next question. If you think students in Northeast Ohio are funny in their winter coats in the summer, try teaching a group of Bahamians who are used to a warm climate, not having air conditioning as much, and then having them in a classroom. They're all in parkas and shivering, and it's an interesting climate difference for them. My question 
couple of weeks ago, we asked, what was the favorite gift that you ever got? This is the flip side of that. What's the worst gift that you've been given? Jen. I tend to be a pretty grateful person that people give me gifts. And, you know, I like to believe that they're well thought out and that it's really, you know, a token of their care. So I try not to be too critical, but I have to tell you when let's just say some rando people in your life feel like they need to get you a Christmas gift or a birthday gift or whatever the case may be. And they give you something scented, particularly something scented that you're meant to put on your body, like a body spray or some kind of a perfume. To me, those are very personal choices, even like candles. Like if you're a person who likes candles, that's a very personal choice of the scent that you choose. And you have to really know that person to know that they get the Bath and Body Works three wick country apple candle, you know, as soon as they come out every year, you know, or whatever. I don't know what that is. I'm not a big candle person, but I've had some folks who like want to give me gifts and they have to do with scents. And it, it feels slightly offensive. Like when somebody's like, oh, here's some body spray. It's like, do I smell that bad that I need to smell that worse with that body spray you just gave me? I mean, wow. You know, so I know that that's sounding a little bit vague, but like I've gotten a number of those gifts over the years and it's a problem. Eric? No smell good gifts for Jen. Got it. All right. I hate to bring this back to work, but it goes with a line. Right. So when one of my first full-time positions in academia was as the assistant director of a graduate school. And I came in and the job duties changed the minute I walked through the door. So I go to talk to the dean about it and she sends me to the assistant dean. I never actually got to go in her office, by the way. Um, and her assistant dean says, yes, we're going to add to your title instructional designer and curriculum developer. And I was like, cool. Yeah, that's, that's good. A um, couple of, you know, a semester later, she walks by my office and comes in and says, our coordinator, our chair for the clinical program quit. So you're chair now. Um, my PhD wasn't done. And uh, she said, well, you know, you'll be all right. And left. Just left. Didn't answer emails, no calls. Um, I got business cards like three days later. So another semester goes by. She comes in and says, you're, you know, our coordinator for the school counseling program left. And you're now coordinator of school counseling. I, I'm, I'm not a school counselor. I'm not, I, I can't coordinate the, and she said, well, consider it all a gift. And left. And left. Again, no emails, phone calls, nothing. Three days later, I get business cards and I now have five titles. Assistant director, coordinator of school counseling, coordinator of clinical, instructional designer, curriculum developer, and all making less than I made in practice. <laughs> and that was by far the worst gift anybody had ever given me, right? At the same time, it built me experiences and, and, and really, again, was one of those kind of quintessential, you need to find your voice or you will be what people tell you you are. Um, but yeah, she's like, consider it a gift. <laughs> Steph? 
So I have two answers. One is kind of those gifts from people where you know they actually don't care and they're not thinking about you. They just... I, it was like, I don't know if I was like nine, 10, 11, something in there and never been close with my aunt, uncle, cousins. And I don't know, it was for my birthday and it was in this box and it was no markings, no wrapping in this box of piece of tissue paper. And these two, I, I didn't know what they were. They were like pink sewn together on one side and it had this cheesy fruit fabric on the other side and it was stuffed and I didn't even know what they were. They were out of a package. It didn't even, the packaging didn't even tell me what they were. They were just in this box loose. And I'm, and then we figured out, I think at least hypothetically, they were knee pads and I don't even know what they were protect you against or like elbow pads. I don't know, but it was really like more like in like, Harry Potter, where when when the Dursleys would send Harry a Christmas gift and it would be like a twig or something like that. That's what it kind of felt like. Um, now, the other one, I can't really share too much because it's a visual, but I do have to say, because this one is from love. This is one of those gifts that is totally from love. And it's it's I won't call it like the worst gift, but it's like one of it, it's totally out of a sitcom. All right. <laughs> so wow <laughs> can you give a visual on that uh yeah. staff or somebody i think someone else has to do it um no it's a painting that you send a photo away i guess my dad knew this person way back when and now they do these paintings from photos but it's has anyone watched Shit's Creek and the giant painting episode? Because it looks like somebody took Steph's face and made her into one of the characters in that painting. It's fabulous. You know, it's, yeah, it's or like the Big Bang, that that Amy Penny picture. The it's, Kramer. Yes. Kramer yes. It should be right behind you right now. You're right. It it's the right Kramer. It's just right needs to... <laughs> It's it's fabulous. Wow. Yeah, is there an actual picture of you looking like that too it's that a, they took it from? It's actually my headshot. <laughs> from when? Do you have the contact information? I want one. <laughs> the person who got this for you loves you. <laughs> Oh, and then they and then they asked if they would do one if if we should get one done for Mike, because <laughs> I kind of felt like yeah, because you know that maybe it would work better as a pair. <laughs> but it's just it's 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 pretty horrendous. And then you could be called the Stepfords. I mean, it just really odd. And, and apparently, this was not cheap. That's all I know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, Gina. <laughs> I don't think I can top that. I don't think I can follow that. That's pretty spectacular. <laughs> For mine, I, uh, so I brought this up with my partner earlier. Um, 
we both have one unanimous gift that was the worst gift that immediately came to our minds when this question was raised. And it was when we were getting married. This was back in 2013. And we had a lot of family friends, families giving us gifts and sending gifts if they couldn't come to the wedding. And this was one of those instances where someone had sent a gift and it was from a really good family friend that was really well off and nice and engaged and had communicated with us. And they sent us this gift and I don't have it anymore. Otherwise, I would show you for a visual, but it got lost in one of the many moves years ago. And it was a big platter that was silver. And I mean, it was like, like probably three feet long. Um, and it was silver and it was a feather and it was chipped. And like the bottom, you know how like on those massive platters that are like for decoration, they have those little pads on the bottom so that they don't scuff up the surface. Well, two of the four were missing. And it was chipped. So it was just very evident that this was not really a gift. This was a, we're going out the door and we just need to send something to check that box kind of situation. And we just stared at this for like an hour. And we were like, what are we going to do with this? How are we going to make use of this gift? Um, So that's mine. Elliot. Apologies. I'm still with Steph's gift. (laughs) That, that, That was amazing. But yeah, I... So it's not the worst, but for me, this is the hardest one to, I'm hanging on to it because it has sentimental value. My father, God bless his saintly soul, he had a cousin who they, they were incredibly close. And his cousin, Nancy, married Walt McCain, who is a wonderful man. And he was a really big deal at General Motors. And um my partner and I, we got to know Nancy and Walt together. And then when we started having kids, you know, uh, we introduced the babies to them and, you know, it was, it was nice, but, um, Walt was, was just such a fine person. And he had, um, he had, he had put together, uh, the beginnings of college funds for our kids and for all of the other, uh, cousins, kids who were connected. And which was just amazing. And he had given me a pair. Now, look at me. Look at how I'm attired. This is how I dress every day. I have an Under Armour T-shirt and, you know, jeans or sweatpants. He gave me a pair of cufflinks that meant a lot to him. And I wasn't even sure how to work cufflinks. But I held on to them. Every I had two dress shirts and they both had buttons and they didn't need cufflinks. And but I I have this incredible like, well, I hold on to them as a as a as a remembrance of Walt and an appreciation for his kindness and his love. Uh, But I wish I could use them. And it's just not my life. It's not my style. And it's just it's a different maybe it's a generational thing, but. They're very nice cufflinks, but I never, I will never have a a, a use uh, for them. Marty. Well, you know, I pulled this question out of my sack of questions and I don't have a really good answer to the question myself. Um, I don't know if that's fair or not. 
Um, there, uh, I, and I have friends who listen to this podcast. So I, you know, I had to eliminate all of them off the list of bad gifts. Um, my wife, Aileen, eh, she doesn't listen to the podcast, but she asked me about it, but I'll tell you, she's known me obviously for years and occasionally she tries to get creative with gifts. So I think, although I can't remember, I think there are a few of those probably on the list. So I'm going to instead tell a story about a gift I got that was a good gift, but really ill-timed. Um, I was uh, acting president for uh, a national association, and we were going out to the different regions for their conferences. And it's kind of a, a whirlwind thing because um, our ACES uh, association has four conferences in six weeks. And if you're the president at that time, you, at that time, we used to move around and go to all of them in a short period of time with the president elect. And so you're pretty exhausted. And it was probably the last one that I had to go to. And it was in a region in my hotel room when I arrived for two bottles of wine. I'm not a big wine drinker, and I certainly am not going to drink a bottle of wine by myself. Um, and there were two of them there. Um, I'm not a big drinker altogether, but when I do drink, it's generally something a little harder and something a little smaller. So I went through the conference for a couple of days and never touched them. So I called my colleague before we were ready to leave and fly home, and I said, what are you going to do with the wine? Do you want this wine I got? No, I don't want, I didn't get to my wine either. So I said, I'm going to, I'm going to give them to the people who work at the hotel. Oh no, they're not supposed to accept those kind of gifts. You know, it's five 30 in the morning. I'm going to go downstairs, and give the two bottles of wine to uh, whoever's working the counter. I get on the elevator and um, going down a few flights uh, or going down a few stores, uh, floors. And a guy gets on and he's half my age and he's exhausted. And he's kind of falls into the corner of the elevator. And I look at him and I'm, I'm like, you're here for Disney World? And he goes, yep. You're here with, uh, with your family? Yep. Um, and I have, I'm holding two bottles of wine. And I said, here you go. And I gave him the two bottles of wine. And, you know, he said, I said, you're going to be here a few more days. You and your wife can have these two bottles of wine. So it was a good gift, ill-timed for me. And I managed to uh, turn it around to someone else. So next question goes to Jen. All right, folks. What behavior alerts you to the fact that you're more stressed than you think you are? So this is your little secret, uh, little button that might pop up of some sort that uh, you didn't think you were stressed, but then all of a sudden you start having this happen and you're like, ah, yeah, that's me, Eric. So it's going to sound a little weird. Um, and I don't know, maybe I've shared this before, maybe I haven't, but I read or listen to a book every day, um, mostly for my own entertainment I kind of keep the academic professional reading to business hours. And then when I want to unwind or relax, I'll, I'll read or, or listen to audiobooks. I've been on an audiobook kick for a while. So um, five or 10 minutes goes by and I can't lock in on the story. I can't connect. 
to it and I know something's wrong, right? Like that's kind of the, it's, it's my unwind time. It's, it's what I do to get my brain in a different place. And if it's not going, I know I'm probably too stressed for this particular coping skill, right? This particular mechanism. And it's a really clear indicator for me because that's such a comfortable and, and happy headspace for me. If I can't get there, I need to be doing more or I need to shift gears. So it's, it's a alarm bells for me that stress is, is much higher than I might've anticipated or thought. So kind of a weird thing, but it's, it's a behavior that, that I know I can manage and I can clock and I know when it's there. Um, so it's usually my, my regular litmus test, right? What about you, Steph? I'm, I'm bossier to, to Mike. Uh, and things annoy me more, um, chewing all the sounds, all the little things. I notice things more. I can be really nitpicky. And then also if I catch really more, if I catch myself fuming over something, that's not a big deal. And is just kind of, and I'm like, I'm really too upset about this. I'm, I'm ruminating a bit. Um, that's that's how I know when I have to take those deep breaths and I'm like, okay, yeah. And there's no reason for this, but not really great to admit it, but I, I just noticed I, I, I'm a little more irritable. Gina? So mine is actually the opposite of Eric's. And I just realized this about myself uh, recently. I'm in the dissertation writing stage of my PhD career. And I... Uh, so I don't, I haven't hit that N yet, my population that I need to have statistical significance yet. And time is running out because I have to defend by April 20th. And there's all these like deadlines and I have to do the stats and I have to write it and all that stuff. So I've been getting a little stressed, a little irritable like Steph, but my way of coping that I didn't realize was my actual way of coping I've been reading one murder mystery novel a day, which is unhealthy. And I recognize that. Uh, but I sit there and I've gotten really into James Patterson and I will just read one a day and I can't put it down and three hours will pass. And I will realize that I have done nothing but read an entire novel in that sitting. So that is how I know that I am avoiding <laughs> doing my dissertation seeking participants and uh and that underneath it all is a big puddle of stress. Elliot, how about you? I can resonate with what you shared, Gina, because I went through quite a few Stephen King novels when I should have been doing dissertation. Um yeah, for me, well, it starts with uh not sleeping. And I always thought it was like the ADHD. I mean, when I was in my 30s or 40s, I could skip a night of sleep, not a big deal, just keep cranking. But now I'll be like, you know, what'll happen is I'll be like, yeah, I'm not tired. I'll keep doing something, working, whatever. And then I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm not really old. Yeah, this is just like my 30s and 40s. Yeah, it's cool. And then the next day, about 11 or 12 o'clock, I'll like, I'll hit the wall. And I'm like, ah, crap. It's not like my 30s or 40s at all. Uh, I'm stressed. I mean, that's typically how it, how it falls out. Marty. Well, um, uh, I think Aileen would agree with uh, Steph, or at least with Mike, 
um, that I have a tendency to get snappier with her uh, as I get more self-absorbed. And then the second statement would be, how could you tell? Because um, I'm always self-absorbed. But uh, what I notice is uh, I'm a list maker and I become a slave to lists. Now, Eric and I have talked about this on the Tech Savvy Professor. There's lots of apps, and I will put things in, in, in lists on apps and still use that for my general workflow. But when things get really crazy, I write them out. Uh, I'll take a big sheet of paper and just write down everything I got to do, everything I got to collect. It generally happens around travel. That's when that behavior comes out. So if I have a conference to go to and I'm prepping for it, or if we're going to do some travel, particularly international travel, that's a big list. Um, but I, I do a lot of lists. And otherwise, you know, life is pretty cool. I can just kind of go, yeah, I got to do this today and this today, and then I got to work through this. But when I'm really stressed, it's list time. Jen. Elliot, your story was making me think of that Bare Naked Ladies song from the 90s about who needs sleep. Oh, you're never going to get it. Who needs sleep? Tell me what's that for? This guy's been awake since the Second World War. Um, and I'm totally, I can't do it anymore. I mean, I used to be able to do the sleep thing, you know, get four hours. Good. You know, I think about my doctoral program. Like, I don't, I think I would sleep like maybe four or five hours a night tops. You know, it was easy then. Now I'm like, I didn't get my full eight hours. Like, I mean, and half the time it's because, you know, it's my own, it's my own stress that's keeping me from sleeping, but that's not my thing. So my thing is that I realize I become an aggressive driver when I am really stressed out. Like I start cursing people out. I start cutting them off. They start getting um, some combination of the digits on my hands. And I have called everybody, every name in the book, and they are the stupidest people on the planet. I'm a pretty chill driver. Like I, and you know, maybe everybody says this, but I'm a good driver. So people don't tend to bug me because I, I see them coming. I'm very defensive. I'm very attentive, but man, when I start getting stressed and I don't know it, that's where it comes out is in my driving. And that's it for all of our questions tonight. We've got one final question, a final shot question. Um, I realize this is sort of a line that you'd hear in a trashy movie but how do you like your eggs? Oh, scrambled. I mean, I just nothing fancy, right? Down home, scrambled. Sunny side up. I like being able to sop them up with a toast. So I don't like eggs until actually recently. Again, this is maybe continuation of the stress. I've been making frittatas and they're actually tolerable and pretty good. Uh, for me, it's uh, over easy as long as the eggs are of double A quality. Other than that, scrambled. I like them always, but if I'm going to order them in a restaurant, over medium. Yep, over easy when I'm in a restaurant, especially when I can get some toast to kind of soak them up, you know. Uh, but generally scrambled when I have them at home. And I like to include a little onion, celery, and some diced ham. So thanks for the squad tonight, uh, Gina, Stephanie, Jen, Eric, and Elliot. Look for some of these characters on their podcasts on the podtalk.net. You can find out more about them at circularfiringsquad.net. Our theme music is from Menage en Quad, Real Swing Shet. That's it for this episode of Circular Firing Squad. Ready, fire, aim. <laughs>